Well, good morning, church. So we are going to continue to behold our God. The Lord has revealed himself in his holy word. And now we get to look at the word and continue to look at the character and the nature of God. Uh, We're doing a series right now on Abraham, who is the father of the faithful. Uh, And now we are entering Genesis chapter 20. And what is ironic is that this great man of faith that we're studying, this father of the faithful, is about to exhibit a lack of faith yet again. Abraham had repeated failures. This is becoming more and more clear as we're going throughout uh, this study. Uh, In fact, this behavior that we're going to look at this morning is very similar to behavior that Abraham displayed earlier in Genesis chapter 12. And you see, Abraham was a man who messed up, but he did not just mess up once, he messed up multiple times. Now, I need not spend the whole introduction arguing and trying to convince you how relevant this is to our everyday experience of the faith. I mean, there are times I find myself, you know, just saying, my God, how did I get here? I've been struggling and dealing with these sins over and over again. And it's in those moments that we can feel awfully defeated. One can feel like giving up. One may feel as if God will forsake them because of their own sin. However, in those moments, the truth of our text shines brightest. It is the truth that God remains faithful to us in our repeated failures. God, this morning, is revealed as the faithful God who remains faithful even in the face of repeated failures. We see that Abraham is imperfect, but God, he remains perfect. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Let's stand and read the scripture this morning from Genesis chapter 20 and see specifically what the Lord has for us this morning. Now Abraham journeyed from there towards the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. Then he sojourned to Gerar. Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech had not come near her. And he said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart, you have done this. And I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet And he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you will surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech arose early in the morning and called all his servants and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were greatly frightened. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And have I sinned? 
and how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what, you ha what have you encountered that you have done this thing? Abraham said, because I thought, surely there is no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And it came about, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said to her, this is the kindness which you will show to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. Abimelech then took sheep and oxen and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham and restored his wife Sarah to him. Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, it is your vindication before all who are with you and before all men you are cleared. Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maids, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Let's read the following scriptures together. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Please remain standing as we go before the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we are seeking you, Lord. Um, and we ask that you would reveal yourself, that the Holy Spirit within us, that your Holy Spirit, you, O oh Lord, would illuminate this text. You would illuminate this scripture and allow it to change us and to transform us, God. We are totally relying on you. And so, Lord, we ask that this would be a blessed time, that this would be a powerful time where your word goes forth and changes the hearts of men. Bless this time, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, if the point of this text is that God remains faithful to us even in our repeated failures, then indeed it would do us well to in greater detail examine the mess that is man. We're pretty messy uh, humans. We're pretty messy, and this is a messy situation here. Uh, so it would do us well to look at the mess and then also look at God's actions, look at the marvelous, wonderful perfections of the Lord amidst man. You see, understanding how inadequate man actually is and understanding the extent of our foolishness actually makes the grace and power of God all the more jaw-dropping. That is the goal this morning. The goal is not that we leave this place feeling guilty or feeling upset, but that we leave this place feeling grateful for the actions of the Lord despite our own mess. Therefore, we will contrast God's actions and the actions of mankind. Now, while such a contrast between God and mankind sounds general and is by no means theologically new, it is fundamental to any knowledge gained that we take 
take things this way and have such a general take. As a matter of fact, John Calvin opens his institute saying, nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. So it is with this framework in mind that we will examine Genesis 20 today. And we're going to look at as alluded to, the messy actions of man. What is going on in man's heart? How, how are men responding to the situation? And we're going to contrast that and look at the marvelous actions of God. The messy actions of man and the marvelous actions of God. Let us start by looking at man. The messy actions of man. So we're going to begin by explaining the specific thing in question, the action in question that sparked most of the events of this chapter. Uh, and it is clear from the most basic reading of the passage that Abraham messed up. What did Abraham do? According to verse 2, he lied concerning his relationship with his wife Sarah. The father of the faithful was a habitual liar. Abr verse 2, Abraham said, to his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. Or said of his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. Uh, this was an awful lie that had many awful consequences. Now, we could all sit here and feel really good about ourselves right now. I mean, I would like to ask for a raise of hands. Who here has ever non-jokingly lied about their spouse being their sibling? Ho hopefully, I don't see any hands. I don't. However, before we feel too superior, it must be recognized that the intent behind the lie, to an extent, reveals more about Abraham's heart than the actual lie itself. You see, the lie reveals only what is really the root problem. It is the reason Abraham lies that is perhaps the ubiquitous root that resonates with all humankind. Why do we perform the sins we perform? What is behind the exterior wall? What is really going on in the heart of the sinner? To find that out, we need to examine Abraham's motives for his sin. You see, the lie, it reveals the failure, but there's more going on here. There's a deeper level. And so when Abimelech questions Abraham... We need to ask, what did Abraham reveal about himself? What was the reasons he gave for giving this lie? We find that out in verse 11. It says, Abraham replied, I thought to myself, surely there is no fear of God in this place. They will kill me on account of my wife. He suspected that if he was honest, Abimelech would have killed him to take his wife Sarah as his own. And you see, in this culture, having a large family, having uh, another wife, especially one of renowned beauty, uh, was a sign of power, a sign of wealth and prosperity. And also, this lie could have created a form of an alliance between Abraham and Abimelech as well. See, the issue here is Abraham is thinking in terms of the cultural norm of the day, thinking in physical terms only. He lied to avoid being seen as a threat to this physical power that he arguably wanted to join himself through, through some kind of alliance. 
And so you see, Abimelech must have had power, he must have been wealthy, and he must have been strong enough to really scare Abraham. Because Abraham is saying the reason he is lying, because he is afraid that if he does not lie, he is going to be killed. So this, this is why uh, Abraham would, would have been afraid. But in short, the motivation for the sin, the motivation, the reason Abraham did what he did was because he feared Abimelech. In other words, it is the conjunction of a low view of God and a high view of the physical earth and the things of man and man that leads to sin. Abraham thought Abimelech would kill him. She says, surely there is no fear of God in this place. And, and this is really ironic. Remember the concept of fearing the Lord? It involves obedience to the Lord and hate of sin. This has been clearly explained in past messages. That, that when we, we're talking about the fear of God, we're talking about hating sin, not doing what is wrong, and being obedient to the Lord. And so this statement is really rather ironic because Abraham himself exhibits an enormous lack of fear for the Lord and instead is fearing man. This is made evident by his lying. Abraham feared Abimelech more than Abraham feared the Lord. But all of this is so backwards, right? We see elsewhere in Scripture in the New Testament, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. But Abraham, he had a focus just on the physical things, just on his own physical life. He was not fearing the Lord or looking at the Lord appropriately. Friends, that besetting sin in your life and in my life, it has roots. And these roots come from an improper view of God and a high view of the physical. We need to combat this tendency. That is why we're here. That's why we're showing up on Sunday, because we need to remind ourselves that there is more than just the physical going on. That there is the spiritual, that there is a king who is really in charge. That's why we're here. That's why it's important for us to be in the Word at home as well. We so easily focus on the physical things, and we don't even give a second thought to the spiritual. We might give an intellectual shout-out to God, but in practice, we pretend He's kind of far off and abstract, some kind of distant being. And the, the real world is the physical world. This is how we act sometimes. We become functional materialists so easily if we're not careful. Abraham believed Abimelech had power and wealth, and there's no one greater around. There's no way to defeat him, so I need to fear him because he can kill me. But we forget that there's another king around, the king. We forget this, and when we do, it always leads to sin. Moreover, true kings give true promises that we are to have faith in. Abraham was not to have fear, he was to have faith. Consider, again, the larger context as well. God has explicated and specifically told Abraham that Sarah would conceive and give birth to his own son, that is Abraham's son. This is mentioned several times to Abraham by now, and it's, it's actually coming up really shortly but what is interesting is Sarah doesn't conceive until Genesis chapter 21, verse 2. 
Meaning, Abraham, on the basis of the promise, on what God had told him, should have been walking confidently and proudly, and he should not have been afraid. He should have not had any reason to lie. Moreover, is arguable, you know, he is argued he shouldn't even be in that area at all. But nonetheless, he certainly should not have had fear. Because God, the true king, the, the true king with all the power, had made him a promise, and that promise needed to pay, take place. But you see Abraham focusing on the physical, forgetting what God had told him, forgetting who's really in charge. You know, if we pause and reflect on the most sinful periods of our lives, you know, that's not usually a fun thing to reflect on, but it's always, always, always coupled with an unhealthy focus on the physical and a lack of focus on God. I cannot think of a time where it has not been the case. That sounds like a pretty elementary point, but those are often the most profound. Therefore, I wonder what would happen if we would refocus on the true king of kings next time we're tempted. Easier said than done, I know. But I pray that the Holy Spirit, by his power within you, reminds us of the root of Abraham's sin that we learned about this morning, that when we're tempted to sin, that we would once again realize that there is a king who is truly in charge and that we would act on that truth rather than the lies we're believing. So Abraham sinned because he valued and feared the world's systems over God. He did not have an appropriate view of God and in those moments of sinful behavior, he certainly had a low view of God. Uh, we see also that what's implied here in verse 11 is that Abraham's trying to blame others for his sin. Um, look at what it says earlier on. It says, Abraham said, because I thought surely there is no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. His first response to try to justify himself, to, to the, his explanation for his action is to say there's no fear of the Lord in Abimelech's kingdom. We already talked about why this is ironic, but well, we can talk about what, what's implied here. He's trying to take the focus off of himself and trying to put it on others. He's doing what all man has done since the beginning of sin. He's blame-shifting. Remember Adam in the garden? Oh, it is the wife that you have given me. That is the reason why I took, took the fruit. And Eve, too, blame-shifting. It's the serpent. And so we see that, a, a little hint of that attitude, of that demeanor here. He's blame-shifting. Oh, there's no fear of God here. Now, what's funny is a cursory reading of this, uh, it sounds pretty admirable, right? Oh, there's no fear of the Lord there, right? It sounds like pretty, pretty holy of him to make such a statement in a, in a warped sense. <laughs> However... Recognizing that the fear of God is absent in some place is never a reason for you to sin yourself. Right? Looking around at America, it's, it's probably very easy to do this. Oh, America, this, this, it's going down the tubes. God's getting taken out of our schools, all of this. So I guess I'm going to go sin too. That's essentially the mindset, the functional mindset that Abraham had here. It's a if you can't beat him, join him kind of mindset quite literally, in fact, potentially due to an alliance that he may or may not have wanted to form. This is very odd. Very odd. It's merely Abraham blame-shifting. Brothers, this is childish behavior. 
This is what I deal with when, when I'm teaching 10-year-olds at school, right? Someone, you know, Jimmy punches someone, right? Pull him aside. Jimmy, why did you punch someone? Well, he called me a name. That's irrelevant to the fact that you responded the way you responded. That's, that's an independent fact. Yes, he's in trouble too. You're both in trouble. But what you did, you are responsible for despite what the other people are doing. Right? This is childish blame shifting that we are seeing take place here. And, and by the way, as a side note, teaching your kids how to stand up for themselves, uh, be, be very careful we're not teaching them how to blame shift and how to sin and not take responsibility for themselves. Quick side note. Uh, we need to be very careful not to blame others for our mistakes. Right? Life is far too nuanced. We are far too limited in our knowledge to say it's entirely because of them. As a matter of fact, we see that Bimelech does kind of respond in, to what the Lord is saying and shows a measure of obedience, and thus there was some fear of the Lord there. So we must be careful not to make ignorant statements to shift the blame away from us, because in the end, we will stand before the Lord alone with our sin. It may involve another person, but just because something involves another person does not strip you of having any responsibility in your inherent sinful problems. Does not mean that you are going off scot-free because it involves another person. Blame shifting will not work with God. Moreover, again, as, as alluded to, we're not aware of the facts. Abimelech here, you know, he does appear to obey the Lord's instructions in this narrative, uh, he's not completely innocent by any means. No one is. But there was a measure of fear of the Lord here, and that's, that's significant because it points out how limited we are in how we act. We, we just make assumptions, and then we act on them. We should be n not too quick to make those assumptions and shift blame in that way. Uh, when we do blame shift, honestly, we end up looking as silly as Abraham. Oh, it's the sin of someone else that made me do this the king of Abimelech had, you know, the, oh, the, the, they had no fear. Abimelech had no fear. And, you know, this is not, uh, it's not the way we should be thinking. This is important. If we're ever to under, let the gospel transform us, we need to be humble enough to admit our mistakes. We need to stop blame shifting. And, and so it gets so bad here that he actually starts blaming not just on others. He actually involves God in the conversation as well. Uh, there's even a hint of blame towards the Lord that is sensed here. Verse 13, and it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, that is Sarah, this is the kindness which will you show me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. Now I want to be careful because it's an ancient culture, different, you know, different culture with different notions and conversations, but it's really funny to me that when Abraham is asked why he did what he did, why he lied, God is thrown into his explanation. And you know what? God did, in fact, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, tell Abraham to leave the land of his fathers. Abraham's not sharing something that's, that's really untrue here. However, what makes this inclusion, the inclusion of this fact, inappropriate is that this has nothing to do with the lie that Abraham is told. As if God, who is perfectly holy, who himself cannot tell a lie, is somehow to be a part of Abraham's defense for his own lying. 
Abraham is trying to cover his shame by mixing religious and even true language in defense of his sin. However, it is a non sequitur. That means it doesn't follow. You can't say, uh, God told me to leave the land of my fathers, therefore I lied. Does not work. Doesn't follow. He's missing some st steps. And he's trying to, again, take the spotlight off of himself and shift it around onto others first and now onto God. God gave no command to lie. So why is God's command to leave the land of his father's house included in this conversation? Well, it goes to a problem with Abraham's way of thinking. In Abraham's head, he had a tough time wrapping his head around the fact that uh, he was told to leave his father's house. And how is he to do this in his own strength? And Abraham's head wandering from his father's house, it was so difficult for him to wrap his head around that he inappropriately equivocates it, equivocates the command to leave his father's house as necessarily being tied to a command to lie. But this is not what God wanted at all. Remember, God says, I will show you. He didn't want Abraham to lie and go about doing, doing things in this way. God wanted faith. God wanted trust. But Abraham, you see, wanted to do things his own way. He focused on the physical, focused on his own power, focused on his own circumstances, what he was able to do so much that he thought the only way I can follow God's command is if I lie. You see, you see what's wrong with his thinking? The only, in Abraham's head, the only way to follow that command, to leave his father's house, the only way this would be relevant to the conversation is if and only if Abraham was assuming this was all to be done in his physical power, by his physical means, the functional materialism creeping up again. In an interesting turn of events, then, when we incorporate God and blame God for our sin, when God shows up in our explanations for why we do the sinful actions we do, we merely reveal that we tried to obey God without faith in our own power. What is interesting is when we are trying, you know, when we're trying to blame God, this is revealed, essentially. What is a thing you're trying to blame God for right now. Maybe, maybe your marriage is tough and a defense for your sinful behavior towards your spouse. Maybe, well, God told me to marry them and marriage, it's, it's not good for man to be alone and so I was obeying that. Well, maybe you're obeying that in your own strength. Don't have God included in that conversation as if he's the one who told you to act a certain way. Maybe, you know, you're, you're lusting. You're saying, well, God made my body and how can he possibly expect me not to lust? If you're doing it in your own power, sure, you will, you will be lusting. But if you're relying on God, there is a way. Maybe you're cheating financially and part of your defense is, well, God called me to, to live here and do ministry in New England um, and it's not cheap around here, so how does he expect me to pay the bills? Where's the faith in these conversations? Don't blame shift towards God. Don't point the finger at the Lord Almighty. Whatever it may be, do not use God as an excuse for your lack of faith and sinful behavior. Instead, uh, instead of doing things in your own power, void of God, have faith to do what he has called you to do. He will provide the means to do it. This only happened because Abraham wanted to do things in his own strength. 
Thus, the underlying assumption for such a person in such a state of thinking is to blame the one who told him to leave his father's house. But this does not follow. This is not logical because God did not tell him to lie. Nonetheless, we see here Abraham blame-shifting. It's, it's, it's them, it's you. He's not ever recognizing responsibility or taking responsibility here. Here's another thing we see. We see that Abraham speaks half-truths. Man and our messy actions, we're so confused and deceited and deceitful. We're speaking half-truths when we're sinning, oftentimes. Uh, Verse 12, besides, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So he's saying, oh, she's my half-sister, so it's okay that I said this. I believe this theme may have come up a few sermons ago about the deceitfulness of sin, how it can sound really deceiving when we're trying to defend ourselves. And this idea that half-truths are okay is a satanic lie, and I believe it's sneaking in to, to many of our churches with that, that are having this idea of this focusing on the purely physical. Moreover, it feels really good when we outs- outsmart other people, doesn't it? Abraham thought the lie was fine. He thought, oh, well, I outsmarted him. It was a means I could have used. It was technically half true, and so I'm clean. This is his, his mindset. He almost has no sense of remorse in the chapter, by the way, when we're reading the text. And that is because he very well may have convinced himself that this was an okay thing to do. Careful. There's a reason, too. I don't throw around this is a satanic lie. I don't say that word satanic loosely. This reminds me, I say this the word satanic because this reminds me of Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. You will be like God. You will know good and evil. Oh, there's a hint of truth there, isn't there? It's not entirely a lie, is it? They would indeed know good and evil, but the result was a spiral of sin for all humanity that would tarnish the image of God that man had. Do not be like the crafty snake when we're trying to defend our sin. God is not amused by technicalities. You know, as a Christian, I'm tired of uh, everyone kind of being cutting it loose on the edge. They're being really close to crossing that line, right? Bragging about, oh, I played Wall Street and won because a loophole. Yeah, there's wise ways to play Wall Street, but there's also deceitful ways to play Wall Street as well. I'm not saying, you know, there's no wise way to go about things and there's, you know, that we're not to use wisdom, but I am saying that sin is awfully deceitful and we need to be on guard. We need to be careful. This goes far beyond just finances as well, right? Think of the person who's maybe looking at pornography on the internet, right? Well, I'm not actually physically cheating on my spouse, right? And so they they use like a half-truth, to kind of cover up, but they're, they're forgetting Jesus' words about lust and, and gospel of Matthew for sure. But it's a technique. It's a deceptive technique, a technicality that does not amuse God who knows all things. Let us not be so foolish to think that we can use a technicality in the defense of our own sin. God is infinitely wiser than us. Every technicality we use he will have an infinitely more technical response to our defense. Scripture says we don't even know our own heart. 
But God does in Jeremiah, right? God knows the heart of man. And we think that we're going to somehow make a defense by saying, oh, it was kind of true. Rule of thumb, here's a general rule of thumb. Uh, if your actions, you know, if in your actions, if you must withhold information, it's probably not good. Uh, think about it. If you're, you know, ethically above par, then you have no reason not to be completely transparent. Again, reminds me of the garden, right? You know why Adam and Eve weren't ashamed of their nakedness? Because they were innocent. If God exposed you right now, if God took the information concerning those actions you're trying to defend right now and put on display the, the stuff that you're leaving out right on this screen behind me, would you feel shame? Would you feel any kind of, would you be uncomfortable with that? If you would, it's, it's probably a sign it might be a half-truth, a lie, in other words. Now, I'm not saying you need to share everything with everyone, that's not what I'm saying, but I'm saying be very careful about withholding information and thinking it is some kind of good defense for a sinful action. If you would be ashamed if someone found out, it's probably bad. Now, granted, it's, it's just conjecture here, but I think shame is maybe starting to creep up with Abraham uh, in his life. When he's questioned by Abimelech, he's trying so hard to cover himself here. I mean, verses 11 to 13 is just an onslaught of excuses right? One after another his, in his house, half-truth. It's doing a lousy job, in my opinion, at covering his shame. I mean, if thousands of years later we can read the story and pretty much parse out, yeah, Abraham did something wrong, then it, that means he did a lousy job. This half-truth defense is not even good by our standards, never mind by the standards of one who is perfect. I mean, Abraham clearly is bearing a measure of guilt here, and clearly this is a failed attempt to hide, to cover. Next we see Abraham's sin. It affects other people as well. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done these things that ought not be done. Abraham's actions, his half-truths, is causing other people to suffer consequences. This man, because of Abraham's lie, was about to contribute to adulterous behavior. Now, I'm not here to entirely debate whether mental awareness of wrongdoing is a necessary component of every kind of sinful action and all this, these, this nuance. I do think he's not totally innocent here because the Lord is bringing about consequences for him, but that is for the Lord to judge, not for, for me to try to parse out. Uh, but there is something to be spoken of regarding Abraham's perspective here, Abraham and Sarah's perspective. It is very clear that this lie Abraham told, if it came to fruition, would result in Sarah and Abimelech violating the marriage covenant of Abraham and Sarah. That is clear. Therefore, from the perspective of Abraham, who has this knowledge, and the perspective of Sarah, there is no defense. This was utterly wrong. What's interesting here is that the sin of Abraham affects other people. And there were consequences that would come about from it. Verse 18 tells us one of these consequences. The Lord had completely closed all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Because of Sarah, Abraham's wife, because of this lie. The point, we are far too narrow-minded 
We think we can account for all the variables and it's going to blow up. Your sin is going to affect others around you. Your sin is going to affect your spouse. Your sin is going to affect your church, right? We are one body. If one part is hurting, all of us are hurting. Your sin affects other people. The consequences of sin, they do not just affect you, and it can lead others to be tempted to do their own wrongs. You can cause others to stumble your half-truth Far from cleverly making it so all parties get out scot-free is in fact perpetuating consequences. And it is far-reaching and far beyond, far-reaching far, far beyond the knowledge that we have. There is something we can learn is that Abraham is very ignorant. He does not understand the ramifications of his actions. Lastly, we see this, and this is a point alluded to earlier, this is not the first time. In Abraham's explanation, he's, we see that this is done multiple times. This is like the default position for Abraham. We saw it in chapter 12. We see it here. Verse 13, it says, he's, he's responding. He says, this is the kindness which you will show me everywhere we go. Say of me, he is my brother. This was the agreement. This was the default, the normal position, the normal behavior that was supposed to be done in situations like this. As if this is some kind of defense that, oh, this is... What we agreed to, and this is the habit that we formed, this is what we do. We know what happened in Genesis 12, we know what happened here, but Abraham, in his words, he's essentially just saying, hey, this is the habit, this is the default, this is what we planned on doing. And so that's part of my defense. It's just kind of what we do. That's what we do. Don't you realize that, Abimelech? Like, that's some kind of answer for, for what he's done here. It's part of his explanation. How sad. It was not the first time that this was done either. Alluded to at the beginning of the message, as gross and as wicked as this analysis that we have just given is, it was done multiple times. I wonder how many sins we ourselves cover up with stories of blame shifting and half-truths that are just, in fact, just deep strongholds in our life, resulting from a lack of trust and an emphasis on the physical we need not plan sin multiple times, but rather we should correct it. This almost just sounds as bad as it could possibly get. <laughs> uh, it sounds like Abraham is pretty, pretty unworthy. Um, if, if I were God, I'm by no means not, but if I were God and I was in this situation, I would have said, promise is done. <laughs> right? It's just, it's just too messy, too, it's too much. But even in habits, even in deep-rooted sin, even in sin that maybe Abraham himself is ignorant of, think of that, the sins we don't even realize we're doing, the sins Abraham maybe is not even thinking about. God is faithful to keep his promise. God acts differently. God, his, his promises go beyond our actions. Our actions are messy. But let's look at how now how God acts in the situation, the marvelous actions of the Lord, of God. You see, unlike Abraham, Abraham was very ignorant. We talked about that. He didn't know what he was doing, the ramifications of what he was saying, telling half-truths. It's all messy, right? That's why I called it the messy actions of man. But unlike that, God's actions, everything God does is informed by his infinite knowledge and wisdom. God is not ignorant. He knows all things. His wisdom informs how he acts here in the situation. This is why his actions are so marvelous. Verse 3, God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because 
of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Abraham fooled Abimelech. Abraham could not fool the Lord. He didn't fool God. God knows our actions. He knows all things. Every action we've ever committed is known by God. You cannot hide from him. Hebrews 4 says there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we must answer. He knows our actions. He also is informed uh, with his infinite wisdom, not just with our actions. He knows our, our heart as well. He knows our heart. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have done these things in the integrity of your heart. As alluded to earlier, Abraham attempted to characterize Abimelech, but no one knows the heart except God. God knew that Abimelech, in this particular case, had taken Sarah from his perspective of ignorance. He knew the heart of Abimelech. Again, does this mean that Abimelech is scot-free or completely innocent? No. Abimelech does some questioning of God here, too, and is, is, has his own ignorance, Right? We saw there was consequences. But the overarching point that, that's being made here is that God, according to the scripture, knows the heart of Abimelech. God knows the, the intricacies of the heart of every person in this room. We talked about it earlier, Jeremiah. The heart is deceitful above all things. We don't even know our own heart, right? There's half-truths and all sorts of mess. We deceive ourselves. But the Lord knows the truth. He knows the heart of man. He knows every fine nuance of who you are. And here is the point. God's actions, before God does anything, he's, his actions are informed by his infinite wisdom and knowledge of everything ever done and every person who has ever lived. He knows the entire story. He acts in accordance with reality, with truth. And when we ponder this point, it should be truly astounding and marvelous because no one seems to have all the facts straight in this story. Everyone's kind of coming at it with a different angle, but the Lord comes in and he knows every angle at, at all times, at, at every possibility, he knows every single thing that needs to be known to be the fair and perfect judge that he is. Truly marvelous. When God comes on the scene and begins to act, he knows everything in the hearts of every, action, uh, of every man and every action involved. He acts according to his knowledge of all things. This is the God we serve. We need not guess. We need not wander and lie and do our own things because we serve a God who has all knowledge. Friends, he has given us his word. He shares with us the knowledge he has, so we too can act in accordance with knowledge. He gives us the Holy Spirit that we can act in accordance with, with his knowledge. We need to be opening up our Bibles. Believe and act upon his word. That's how the Lord acts. It's genuine knowledge. The Lord speaks truth. Those messy areas, those things you're not sure about, those, the deceit of your own heart, crack open the word. And, and, and read it with the Holy Spirit and allow him to transform you and to reveal truth to you. I pray we do this. I pray we trust him and take him at his word and act on the knowledge that he has shared with us. An another marvelous action of God is he's merciful. He prevents wrongdoing. Verse 6 and it was I who kept you from sinning against me, says the Lord. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. 
You see, the plans of man, if they had went through, rampant evil would, would have taken place. But God, when he acts, he, he prevents evil. He stops evil. He comes on the scene, and he starts to transform things and change the way things, things were if they had gone according to our plan. He prevents Abimelech from sinning. It's an enormous mercy, an enormous mercy. And this is always what it looks like when God comes on the scene. God begins correcting the, res the results of the messy actions of man. I didn't put it on here. It was my mistake. Verse 7, look at what else God is, is doing. He's getting things back in order. It says, now then return the man's wife. He wants to set things right. Those mistakes, those results of your messy actions, when God comes on the scene, when God acts, he wants to restore friends. That's why he came. That's why Jesus came and died. He wanted to set right the things that we messed up. When God acts, this is what he does. He is merciful and he wants to set things right. He wants to prevent evil from taking place. And, and instead of perpetuating evil, he wants to make things good, make things right again, correct things. We would just make a mess of it. You know, without, without God, God's actions, Abimelech would have taken Sarah as his wife. Think about the larger context for a minute. Sarah is about to, in the next chapter conceive. Had Abimelech and Sarah gone off and had Abraham's planned work, this would have been a nightmare to orchestra, to try to figure out who is who. This would have been such a bad thing to come to pass. You know, maybe it was a good thing. Oh, we're making an alliance, whatever was going on there. But this would have been an awful thing. And so God, in his infinite wisdom, he says things right. Give Abraham back, or excuse me, give Sarah back to Abraham. He's setting things right. He's correcting the mess of man. Moreover, obviously, Abimelech's house, they were once again, because of the Lord's action, once again, they were able to bear children at the end of our narrative. Verse 3 and 5, uh, excuse me, verse 3 and verse 7 indicate that he was as good as a dead man if he touched Sarah and did not return her. But God, acting in, acting in his infinite wisdom, his, his infinite knowledge, graciously intervenes on behalf of mankind and their stupid decisions. Even though both Abimelech and Abraham thought they knew what they were kind of doing, they both were, had different information, but they both were pretty confident in what they were doing. God says, neither of you know what you're doing. Here, let me fix this. Let me fix this. And he intervenes on behalf. Where would we be without God's actions? Where would we be without God's interventions? Where would you be this morning if your plans had come to pass the way you wanted them to? I am thankful that the Lord shows mercy. I am thankful that the Lord says, oh, da oh David, you want that job? No, I don't want you to have that job. I want you to have this job instead. I am thankful for the Lord's direction and action and infinite wisdom because without that, who knows where we would be, friends? I am thankful for the Lord. He shows mercy and he corrects our wrongdoing, corrects the mess that we make. Not only that, he restores and he abundantly blesses. Abimelech then took sheep and oxen, male and female servants, and gave them to Abraham and returned 
his wife Sarah to him. Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please. Also gave him some silver, I think, in verse 16. Simply shocking. Right? Abraham lies and in the end gets a blessing. Now, mind you, Abraham did not get that blessing because of what he did. Abraham got the blessing because God acts generously and graciously towards Abraham. Not only are things restored through God's actions, but additional blessings are given. Friends, those of you who have failed, those of you who who think, oh no, I messed up, I ruined my marriage, I ruined my job, whatever plan blew up in your face, the the blowing up in your face of the plan, that's not a good thing inherently in and of itself, but God can redeem and God can bless you. He is a God who blesses and gives abundantly and generously to his children, even when we mess up. This is truly astounding. This is amazing. We see that God is just so, so gracious. He's a God who acts not just mercifully towards us, but graciously. Remember, mercy is not getting what we do deserve, right? He did all that already. He says, oh, you don't want to marry Sarah, trust me. I'm going to correct your mistake. But also, he gives graciously. That means we get something that we don't deserve, Abraham didn't deserve any of this. Who but our God would would give Abraham blessings like this despite Abraham's sin? What has God blessed you with this morning? Let's contemplate that. Would we be thankful this morning for his grace that he's showed towards us, for the things he's restored, for the blessings he's abundantly given because we deserve nothing? We are the sinner in this case, and we're often ignorant of our own sin. But he chooses to bless us anyway. When God acts, he acts both mercifully and graciously and generously. And here is where we land. Here's what blew my mind. It's that God acts through broken people. He acts through broken people. Now, now wait a minute. This, this point was supposed to be about the marvel, marvelous actions of God. Why is there speak of man doing something here? What, why is this in this point rather than the last? Well, to emphasize the reality that God in his love and grace decides to act through man, uh, we, we, can, we can pause and look. You know, I could not. I could not put this point in the messy actions of man because this is no longer messy. (laughs) This is no longer messy, meaning God is now on the scene. He's acting through people. That's the point. Despite all of the mess, despite the ignorance, despite the half-truths, despite the deceit, despite the lies, God still views Abraham a certain way and still uses Abraham. Look at what he calls him. He says, Now, therefore, he's speaking to Abimelech here. He says, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. What? This is the person who did the sinning, and God is saying, you're you're a prophet? I think this is the first time that that word is used in the scripture, prophet. That means he's he's a representative of God. What? How did did Abraham uh, represent God here? 
But God is so gracious. He uses broken people, friends. He uses people like me who mess up every day and I can stand before you and preach the word. He uses people like you to teach children in Sunday school to stand at the door and greet people, to, to serve the church and give food. How does he do this? What a God we serve. Despite all of this, God still loves Abraham and uses Abraham and is faithful, calls him a prophet. And then he has Abraham pray. That's weird. Abimelech's talking to God right now. Can Abimelech just say, God, could you please, uh, you know, or, or God tell Abimelech, rather, I'm going to restore you if, you if you return, you know, this, uh, this wife back to Abraham and just kind of do it, cut the middleman out, right? I'm all about that usually. Cut the middleman out, get him out of here. God says, no. I want Abraham, I want you to ask Abraham to pray for you because Abraham is my servant, he's my prophet. God uses broken, evil, ignorant, habitual sinners like you and me. Now, again, I want to be clear. This is listed under the marvelous actions of God for a reason. For starters, when Abraham prays in Abimelech, uh, for Abimelech and for his people to be heal healed, it's not Abraham who heals anyone. He was a mere tool in the hands of God. Recall verse 17. It says, Then Abraham prayed to who? To God. And who did the healing here? And God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they could bear children. Friends, we have a God who acts through people, through, through sinners like you and me. He uses people like us to bring about his will. This is amazing. We have a, a God who literally takes the mess, the confusion, and brings it into order and is faithful to us. I pray that as we've seen the depravity of man and confusion of man, to be honest, I was confused preaching some of those points. I'm like, is Abimelech sinning? Like, what's going on? I'm confused up here. But you know what? That doesn't necessarily matter because God knows everything. And God still uses us, still uses me, right? So, so amazing. I pray that we've been encouraged. I pray that we've seen, again, how our mess basically just serves to, to show how awesome God is at cleaning it up so effortlessly, so effortlessly. He is amazing. Let's bow our heads and pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you, Lord, that you have cleaned up our mess. And most of all, Lord, you've cleaned up the mess of our sin. Lord, I pray for anyone in this room who does not know you, Lord, that they would stop blame shifting and look at the mess they've made. And Lord, that you would come in and intervene and clean it up. Oh God, and that they would worship you for the grace that you have shown them. Lord, bless this day, we pray. In Christ's name.